Hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Coming to you from the studios of Radio 2 SER on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right around the country on the Community Radio Network, each week we take a look at the numbers that make up the news. This program is made possible with the assistance of the UTS Business School. Well, the financial year has come and gone, and you may have received emails or phone calls or postage from any number of charities calling for tax-deductible donations. The not-for-profit sector makes up 11% of the economy, employs around 1.4 million Australians. Indeed, a glimpse at this sector in 2019 paints a rosy picture of a broad industry made of large businesses and smaller volunteer outfits a sector growing in donations, in assets, and in government support. But this was before the pandemic, where operations were shuttered and volunteers were sent home, while at the same time, the demand for services supplied by charities increased. While the industry has been stretched thin by the current crisis, the government has committed to cutting the red tape in what is arguably one of the most regulated industries in the country. Yet at the same time, there's been a restriction on what actions and protests charities can support in their governance standards. And if they fail to accord with these, they face the threat of deregistration. To discuss a sector under pressure, I was joined earlier by Dr. Bronwyn Dalton, head of the Department of Management at the UTS Business School, and coordinator of the Masters of Not-for-Profit and Social Enterprise Management, and Tim Costello, Chair of the Community Council for Australia. I'll put this open to both of you, but prior to COVID-19, what was the state of the charity and the not-for-profit sector in Australia? In a sense, COVID has been a great accelerator of some pre-existing trends. We saw movement in funding models over time, which is much more, I suppose, people-centred, tied to incidents of services with the rise of the NDIS. A struggle, I think, for the not-for-profit sector to secure ways to fund administrative costs with different types of contracting, a gradual decline in some areas of structured giving and donations. But nevertheless, they were still steady in terms of size of around 56,000 registered with the ACNC, um, but of course a much bigger group, up to around 600,000 forms of not-for-profits in Australia doing a whole raft of amazing things. I totally agree with that. We know that there was flatlining in giving going on pre-COVID, looking at the best estimate of people who claim a tax deduction uh, for a charitable donation through the ATO. There was a flatlining of giving there, fewer people, sometimes giving greater amounts, so it wasn't, you know, hugely dramatic. But COVID, as uh, Bronwyn said, has uh, accelerated some of those trends. You know, the remarkable thing about the not-for-profit sector is that uh, it employs so many Australians, nearly 1.8 million Australians, and uh, is such a significant part of the GDP. But 
barely gets a seat at the table in uh, national productivity commission uh, uh, inquiries. Uh, business will be there, trade unions will be there. The not-for-profit sector, which is very sizable, is just overlooked. Perhaps because they think of us just as uh, bleeding hearts. <laughs> but in terms of um, employment and economic GDP. This is a very significant sector and has a disproportionate, very small voice, often overlooked. And I think COVID uh, hasn't necessarily helped uh, improve our position. So 8% of Australians work in the not-for-profit sector. In terms of GDP, it generates more than the state of Tasmania. So it's the number one employer and a massive player in the economy, yet underrepresented or and underconsidered by policy makers and politicians. I think partly because of their certain views, but also because the not-for-profit sector in Australia is still struggling to form a more united voice. Considering what a uh, large part it is in the Australian economy, what has the role of charities and not-for-profits been in supporting people during the pandemic so far? And I might start with you, Bronwyn. At this point in time, the demand for support from not-for-profits has never been so high and resourcing in a long time has never been so low. So they're absolutely stretched. We had bushfires, then floods, then the pandemic. You think of things like mental health, those services are swamped. Domestic violence up in huge numbers, people losing their job and falling on tough times at the moment because of changes in the COVID economy. If it wasn't for them, I think society as we know it would be unrecognisable. They are ensuring that our system keeps on working, that people's basic needs can be met. And we have a huge debt of gratitude that we've got that sector working hard, not only to avoid complete abject underclass of poverty, but also to strengthen our democracy. So it's very busy, it's very in demand, and it's very under-resourced. It sounds like a wicked problem in a way then, when you phrase it like that, to be very in demand, but also to be very under-resourced. Tim, you know, as someone who is formerly the CEO of World Vision, how do you think the end of financial year donations, that that's been impacted by the pandemic? So the, the landscape is quite patchy. There are some organisations, World Vision's among them, that have done surprisingly okay during COVID. There are lots of others that really are looking now at their financial viability. In terms of explaining that patchiness, uh, I think uh, there has at least been uh, coverage of uh, COVID uh, in developing countries, what we call developing countries from Indonesia, where people are dying in the gutters without oxygen. We saw that in India. The Australian government temporarily increased aid by nearly a billion dollars. There has been a sort of counterintuitive but pleasing response to say, actually, we, we know that an invisible virus has biologically connected the whole world. We're all equally vulnerable, equally interdependent. I think Australians have often said to be like that. So there have been some organisations that have been able to say these extraordinary times, we do need your support. And also, um, like World Vision, have plugged into some of those increased government grants. For many others, smaller charities, they relied on running events. That was their main fundraising 
technique, well, you couldn't have events in COVID and lockdown. Uh, they depended on their volunteers. Most volunteers are over 65 and they were most at risk and they weren't going to be out fundraising and we're seeing volunteering decrease. So it's a very uh, patchy story. And look, uh, I haven't seen the latest figures, but my guess is that up to 15, 20% of charities are, are looking at not being sustainably viable because of the impact of COVID on their normal functioning. I did a report on the arts and cultural sector, and I think they were the ones who really got the biggest kick in. Not being able to perform or get revenue from patronage means that it's predicted that at least 30% of arts and cultural organisations in the sector are facing imminent closure. It's interesting to think about that kind of breakdown. You know, when we talk about the charity sector, there are certain charities that have definitely that may not have done well, but who have stayed afloat. And then there are others, such as you've just said, with the arts and cultural sector, where there's been less success or, or, or smaller to medium sized ones that were reliant on those uh, events. So like fundraising balls or such. One of the key elements of the government's response to COVID-19, as I'm sure we're all aware, was the JobKeeper package. What was the role of that package in terms of subsidising the sector? And was it effective in keeping charities afloat and able to continue to fulfil their charitable purpose? Absolutely. The interesting thing is we were initially left out of the JobKeeper package. We had to lobby and remind the treasurer of how many people we employ and uh, how at risk we were. You know, they didn't forget Crown Casino and Jerry Harvey, but they did forget the charity sector initially, to their credit. And, and, and Tim, they also forgot that universities are charities. Oh. Well, they never, ever got in. Exactly. That's appalling. But JobKeeper, to answer your question, was the lifesaver for most charities. Yes. Uh, they, they literally could say, let's see if we have a future after we come out of this. Let's reorganise, look very hard. At, is there any other way we can do our business? But JobKeeper gave us life support to continue. According to a survey done by the Australian Institute for Company Directors, they asked about one and a half thousand profits. And of those, the social service providers said that 60% lost money and it was only because of JobKeeper that they could stay open. As Tim has pointed out, it's a sector that covers a lot of different fields. And there are some areas that are doing better than others. And just to, I suppose, put a bit more positive news out there, giving to environmental charities is on the rise. And also, I know anecdotally, but it's also in the giving report, but I know from my students, there's a big interest in social enterprises and uh, there's a lot of more activity in that area is growing. So not everything is on decline. Um, It just depends on your particular field. Do you think that there are certain charities where it's more, well, I guess I will say in vogue because I can't think of a better word for it, but it's more in vogue to be giving to certain charities such as, you know, these environmental ones. And if so, what what are the charities that you think are struggling to adapt? The sector because it is so enormous is variegated in terms of responses. Um, Those charities that were able to pivot to online and to that presence and had the skills certainly did better than those that uh, 
still had an old volunteer once a year ball type fundraising event that couldn't be run. So we certainly saw that. Part of the um, answer is there are always in vogue uh, needs. It's always been pretty tricky to deal with homelessness. Amazing. We discovered in lockdown we could actually put our homeless in hotels and uh, it wasn't that hard. We, we solved a problem, but areas like that as compared to uh, kids with cancer, which really touches the heartstrings, have always struggled because they, homelessness wasn't in vogue. It was, well, they must have done something bad or they're lazy or they're to blame. Well, actually, we now know a whole lot more about domestic violence and homelessness, about mental health and homelessness, uh, the the ascribing of guilt uh, uh, and the evaporating of funds for charities working in that area is not very rational. First of all, what drives giving? What people say why they give and why they really give are different. So they say because they're altruistic and whatever. But usually there's that in there, but it's usually something that's affected their life personally. A CEO is more likely to give to breast cancer if someone in his family has suffered that. But also we can't make too much of giving because the bulk of the big not-for-profits are funded to a very significant extent by government. Really the charities that have grown the strongest are the ones that deliver services that are likely to be funded by government. Government contracts is really critical to the larger charities in terms of their overall funding profile. Giving is just a smaller player in in their budgets. A few days ago, uh, Assistant Minister Michael Sukkar announced that the government is looking to reduce the financial reporting obligations for small and medium-sized charities. Is this, do you think, what the sector's been looking for after the past 18 months that it's had? Well, there's two things going on uh, in parallel coming out of Michael Sukkar's office. Uh, We have been running a fixed uh, uh, fundraising laws campaign for some time. The red tape is unbelievable and the compliance costs ridiculous because uh, if you conform to the law, as most reputable charities try to do, you have six different state jurisdictions for fundraising completely at odds with each other and the compliance costs of that wouldn't have been tolerated for a day with for-profit business, but has just been allowed to drift after productivity commission reports and recommendations to harmonise it. We are seeing a little bit of movement, but a long way to go uh, on that. The second thing coming out of Michael Suka's office is really a silencing of charities, the uh, extension of effectively summary offences that mean a charity... uh, can lose its registration through the empowering of the Australian Charities National Commission uh, to uh, say if your employees commit a summary offence, you're uh, in breach and bang, you are are deregistered. Doesn't apply to political parties, doesn't apply even to business, suddenly applies to charities and charities are already the ones that um, um, are the most highly regulated. The long-for desired harmonisation of things like fundraising rules across all the different state departments of gaming and so on, where you can do a fundraiser in a park in one state and then if you do the same thing in another state, you're breaking the law, all of those. That desire for harmonisation, perhaps uh, Swigger's office is using that as 
some sort of sweet coating on the bitter pill of an agenda to gag charities. The not-for-profit sector is far more than just deliverers of service provision. They come from the social movements that have given us the human rights that we associate with living in Australian democracy. And what's more, they, on a daily basis, protect those human rights. We wouldn't have recognition of anything from women having the vote to domestic violence uh, services if it wasn't for the advocacy of the not-for-profit sector fighting for Australians to play with the ability of not-for-profits to defend democracy only risks diminishing democracy itself. Going back to that fundraising harmonisation element, I think personally of the most notable instance of this, and it's probably not an accurate example because it concerned a trust, would have been the Celeste Barber Facebook fundraiser where we saw something like $51 million go into the RFS in New South Wales Trust. And then people were suddenly bewildered by the fact that this money could only be applied in certain ways regarding how the trust uh, document was drawn up. Why have we not seen the law adapt to fit a kind of cross-border donation style that people are currently undertaking? Why instead are we looking at financial reporting obligations being the kind of carrot to to go with the advocacy stick? Yeah, so the uh, truth is uh, a whole lot of charities, Celeste Barber being a good example, do crowdfunding without complying with the laws. So many are uh, the charities that take seriously those six state and two territory different jurisdictions. They've got enormous compliance costs because they are really obligated under the law to do that. Why hasn't it changed? You've got to get treasurers and states to hand over powers to harmonise and the, the federal treasurer to do it. And it just hasn't been important to them. It's actually uh, not significant enough for them for the very reason we started with. Business speaks, uh, well, everybody jumps. Charities, well... who's too sure who they are and they don't quite have a concerted voice so we just haven't had the power to to get that happening. The truth is that this just goes to voice muscle and um, having political momentum to get these things fixed. Very uh, disconcerting to think about. In terms of ACNC Governance Standard 3, now you know, the pro bono sectors said that this is a crackdown on activist organisations masquerading as charities. We've already seen in a 2018 external review of the legislation that there's no issue with unlawful behaviour. If anything, it recommended that the ACNC's existing power to take action against charities that commit serious breaches of the law should be removed because it's not their responsibility to monitor compliance or impose sanctions for breaches. In Senate estimates, the Commissioner, Dr. Gary Johns, noted that there's no data that says this is a problem. What's the importance of advocacy for charities and for not-for-profits? Bronwyn, I think you touched on that a little bit earlier in um, quite stirring fashion, but why is this suddenly a supposed problem. Well, I I, I want to hear Tim's views on this. All I'll say is they're also pushing for uh, free speech requirements in university governance arrangements. So it seems a bit contradictory to me. Yeah, look, this is a play uh, in the culture wars to the base, red meat to the base that particularly dislikes environmental charities or uh, those charities that might organise a protest at armaments uh, uh, factories to uh, 
with their campaign to stop the war on kids and Australian weapons being sold to uh, regimes that uh, use them to kill kids. Uh, this is um, a view that is so outdated that it's embarrassing, namely if you're giving a blanket to the poor uh, or a roof, you're charitable. If you're asking why are they homeless, you are going beyond remit as a charity. Uh, nowhere um, is, is, does, does anyone think this makes sense. Charities start always by responding to a need. If I think of the World Visions, the Save the Children, the Oxfams, they all started uh, responding to war and orphans of war. And then they said, but if we're going to really ameliorate conditions of orphans and children, we actually have to stop war. <laughs> we need to be advocating around peace and reconciliation. And you move from just practical support, never move away from doing it, you keep doing it, to also advocacy. Now, they would be much more honest if uh, Michael Suker's office came out and said, look, environmental charities, we want to get them. That would be, um, you know, an honest uh, statement of what's going on. But what they've done is massive overreach. If charities commit crimes, the laws are already there. This is an overreach which is just red meat to the base. Uh, it's politics. Tim, it looks like even in the wording of the proposed Governance Standard 3, it's not even that they need to commit crimes. It's that they could be believed or perceived to be going to commit something that could constitute a summary offence. It's, it's Yeah, it's a subjective test and the Law Council of Australia, Arnold Block, Lieber, or others have pointed out it's unconstitutional, it's undemocratic. Uh, find, find another uh, adjective. Uh, it's ridiculous. It's it's uh, what, you know, you expect of authoritarian leaders like Putin. This it makes no sense whatsoever. If Gary Johns thinks they might, he's empowered to act. This is a nonsense. But it might go through. They've got the numbers. Uh, we've got to get the crossbench to disallow it. We're working on that at the moment. It'll probably come down to Pauline Hanson's vote. So like lots of things that are authoritarian and uh, scarcely credible happening in 2021 in Australia, in a democracy, it might still happen. The idea to gag charities is also unenforceable. All power to you. I really hope you swing this. Sorry, no pressure. <laughs> Desperate, desperately worried about this. <laughs> Thinking about the, the state of how governments have responded to COVID, we've seen JobKeeper and JobSeeker and a rise in JobSeeker, but we're starting to see some of that withdrawal. You know, um, I believe it was the Centre for Social Impact that the loss of JobKeeper means that we'll see about 14% of all charities being at risk of becoming unviable by September. They also had a survey in December where they said, well, about half the respondents in the social purpose policy environment said that they believe that uh, the future environment is currently uncertain. As government kind of withdraws these financial responses, as we see charities still under pressure and potentially under greater pressure to comply with a kind of secondary regulation on the conduct of their volunteers, not to end on a, a downbeat, but I, I guess I should ask, where do you see the sector going in the future? Are we just seeing that one of the largest economic sectors in the country is currently in a bit of a crisis point. Well, one of the reasons why Australia has what one of the 
per head of population, largest not-for-profit sectors, and Australians rely on the not-for-profit sector for support and advocacy and services, arguably more than any other country in the world, is the not-for-profit sector was here before government and it'll outlast government. It's a resilient, dynamic space that regenerates with new uh, social attitudes and the dynamism of the next generation. These are concerning trends at the moment and um, Tim's going to stop it, thank goodness, the, the legislation, but uh, he and I both know it's resilient and will always uh, defy any outside attempts to weaken it. Yeah, I agree end. with that. Uh, look, the... The pendulum swing is always there. There were gagging clauses under the Howard government. If you are a charity that took uh, government money, you uh, can't criticise them. I remember having a moment on Alexander Downer's advisory council when he was foreign minister and he said, it's fine to criticise Mugabe in Zimbabwe. You can't criticise the Australian government. Uh, And the sense that charities actually see a need, respond, organise themselves, then have a discussion, which is a very important discussion, how much government funds will we take because there'll always be this pendulum swing to try and crack down on us. That's a really very alive conversation. The other way governments muzzle you is they shorten the contracts of their funds and uh, they leave you with great uncertainty in, uh, in hiring and programming because of uh, those shortened contracts. But I, I am quite confident that um, that need, uh, that civil society ability to organise, to respond to a need, to speak up will continue, uh, whatever the pendulum swings back and forth uh, go on in this area. The, the reality is if we develop a unified voice, there's a very simple lesson is that Australians and Australian politicians need the not-for-profit sector more than we need them. Yep. That's all for today's panel. Thank you to my guests, Dr Bronwyn Dalton and Tim Costello. You can catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends or leave a review. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. We'll see you next week.